the topic I gave months ago was uh, giving the Bible functional authority, giving the Bible functional authority in your speech and writing. Now, the reason I say speech and writing instead of preaching is because you do much more speaking than only preaching. You counsel people with endless kinds of problems. You stand by dying saints with families gathered around the bed, and they expect you to say something unimaginably significant at that moment, and you should. And you speak on the street and draw people to Christ in your evangelism. And you speak at banquets and small groups and staff meetings and family devotions. So you're opening your mouth all the time and saying things that are expected to be true and life-giving. So I'm, I'm talking about all of that when I say speaking. And when I say writing, more and more pastors write newsletters, more and more pastors blog, more and more pastors tweet and do Facebook and Instagram, and our words are going out through all kinds of written formats as well as speaking formats. So I'm concerned about all of that, and I want you to give the Bible functional authority in all of your speaking and all of your writing. Now, what I mean by authority is this. Authority is the right to direct. It's the right to guide. It's the right to decide what is good and bad, true and false, right and wrong, beautiful and ugly. And there are degrees of authority. God has absolute, ultimate, final, decisive authority. And the six-year-old child that a mom commissions to take the three-year-old out to the sandbox and not let him go in the parking lot has authority. And it's, it's not as great as God's, but it's real and it's derivative. So the one I'm talking about in this message is God's authority, absolute authority, final, decisive, God and his will as revealed in Scripture is the authority I'm talking about. Now, we don't give. So the title says, giving God functional authority in all that you speak and write. You don't give God his intrinsic authority. You don't give God his absolute authority. God is ultimate authority in the universe, whether you give it or like it or not. He made the world. He owns the world. He understands the world perfectly. He is infinitely worthy of the world's allegiance, and therefore he has absolute authority, ultimate, final, decisive. You don't have anything to do with that. So I'm not talking about that when I say give, give God functional authority. God speaks, and when he speaks, he has supreme authority, and that we know in the book. 
That's how it comes to us. All Scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible spoke, men spoke as from God and were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21, the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14.37, the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus said that. John 10.35, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus said that, Matthew 5.18. Now, my own view, I wrote a whole book about it a year ago, is that when all historical, philosophical, apologetic reasoning is done, the uneducated Christian in the village in the farthest reaches of a jungle, the pre-literate tribesmen in the South Sea Islands, the eighth grade Christian in your church, eighth grade young person in your church, the new convert out of a totally unchurched background, all those people, when all historical, philosophical, apologetic work is done, those people will know that this book is the word of God because they have seen with the eyes of the heart, Ephesians 1.18, they have seen with the eyes of the heart the peculiar distinguishing glory of God shining through the meaning of the pages of this book or they won't know it. And you can be persuaded kind of with arguments that go behind the book. But they are very problematical. They produce probabilities. They don't produce absolute, I will die for you certainties. And therefore, when they're all said and done, either you have seen it or you haven't. And that is a work of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see what is really there. He doesn't tell you what's there. He opens your eyes to see what's here. So there's always objective material. You can go up to somebody and say, watch, let's look at it. Let's look at it. You don't have to pull rank on them and say, the Holy Spirit told me it's God's word. Maybe he'll tell you. I hope so. You never approach it that way. This is the glory. Either you see it or you don't. But you can keep pointing people to it. You can keep helping them look and look and look. And then God might be pleased. Not to whisper. It's true. It's not the way it works. But suddenly, eyes, veil goes up. Blinders come off. Hard heart comes out. New heart goes in. Yes, that can only be the word of God. So that's where we see the absolute authority at work. Now, we don't give it. We don't give it its authority. We don't give God his authority. We don't give the Bible its authority. However, however, we do give the Bible functional authority in our lives, which simply means we submit to it. 
we acknowledge it. We own it. We embrace it. We approve it. And in our best moments, when the Holy Spirit has fullest sway in our lives, we love his authority. We delight in it. We revel in it. We say with Jesus, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Not first my duty, my obligation, which are true. That's just not the food. The food is to do his will is my food. I eat obedience to my delight. That's what Jesus said. And at our best moments, we're satisfied in happy obedience of the beautiful authority of God. We, we give it authority by enjoying it, receiving it, reveling in it, swallowing it, being nourished by it. So we don't give him his absolute authority, but we give him functional authority in that Sense. And one of the reasons of this message, it's not the main reason, but I'll, I'll tell you one of the reasons, and maybe, maybe the main reason later. One of the reasons for, for this message now is that I see so many people who call themselves Christians, young and old, who don't seem to live on this food. They don't seem to love or live in the happy shadow of the wing of God's absolute authority. They don't feel at home there. I'm not at home. I don't, I'm not, this is not my home underneath this happy wing of absolute authority. I see a lot of this. Kind of breaking out, just kind of breaking out of that shadow. So they don't eat obedience with relish. And I get the distinct impression that the world and not the word is the functional authority in their lives. And I, I don't want God's shepherds in sovereign grace to go there. Don't want you to drift in that Direction, or have people in your church drift in that direction. So this, this message is designed in part to help us speak and write in a way, in all those situations, that gives the Bible functional authority in our lives and in our ministry. And, and what does that mean practically is what this message is supposed to communicate so let me set the stage with um, two passages of Scripture uh, for the practical illustrations I'm going to spend most of our time on. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, that's where we'll go first. And we'll take a very familiar passage for this group of pastors, but I'll read the context of verses 12 through 22 
of 1 Thessalonians 5. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, or, um, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And here comes the, the relevant part for my purpose. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, verses 20 and 21, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, test everything, hold fast to what is good. Almost everyone assumes when they read that, that it's talking about listening to other people's prophecies, which is right. That is what it mainly is talking about. When you hear somebody say something purporting to be true and from God, it says, test it. But I'm arguing now in this message that by implication, it applies to every thought that rises in your head purporting to be from God or in general purporting to be true. So the principle of test all things, not just what you're hearing out there coming into your church or coming at you, but rather test everything that goes up in here, test everything that happens in your head, everything that happens in your heart and wants to come out. One of the reasons I feel warranted in that application of this text, even though that's not Paul's main purpose, I don't think here. I'm, talk, I'm saying it's an implication of what he's saying. Is because of what he says in 1 Corinthians 14, and you're familiar with this. When he's addressing prophets, he says that they should control their own speech, at least the timing of it. So let two or three speak. Only one at a time. And then he adds this. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, you can control your own spirit-given utterance and should not assume that everything you believe is from the spirit should be spoken. Something should be spoken some things should not be spoken. Some things should be spoken now. Others should be spoken later. So you can control that. So we know that someone speaking by the Spirit has the capacity to control that speech, make a decision based on love, chapter 13, whether the word should be spoken or not. So if I go back to first. Thessalonians 5.20, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast to what is good. 
We know that a person can control his own prophecies and whether they should be spoken or not. How much more then should we say that a person can test his own thoughts and discern whether they are from the Holy Spirit or not? Not just, okay, I know it's from the Holy Spirit and I will control whether it be spoken, but now I have to decide, is this thought that's in my head from the Holy Spirit at all? <coughs> is it true? Is it of God more basically than that? So if we ask, by what shall we test that? By what shall I test thoughts, ideas, ready to be spoken? Paul gives a very clear answer in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, so if you... If you think God has moved you to say something, or if you just are feeling especially spiritual in your discernment about a situation and you're going to address it, it says, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So your claim to be a reliable spokesman for God's truth is tested by whether you put your thoughts under the apostolic writings, whether you give them functional authority. If you don't give the apostolic teaching functional authority, then what you're about to say should not be credited as of God. You can't claim to be prophetic. You can't claim to be spiritual because you're a rebel against the king and you shouldn't be paid attention to. So, authority is in God Absolutely. We submit ourselves to it and give it functional authority by testing thoughts that come into our mind that want to be spoken or written by submitting them to apostolic teaching. And I would say to biblical teaching because part of apostolic teaching is that the whole Bible is true. Paul bore witness, all scripture is inspired by God, and Jesus bore witness, the scripture cannot be broken. So if you give Jesus authority and you give Paul authority, which is what prophets do or what people do who are speaking the truth, then the test becomes biblical and not just apostolic. So whatever the Bible teaches, that's what you submit to, and that submitting is the giving of functional authority to God in what you're about to say or what you're about to write. You run it through the test. Does it accord with apostolic teaching? Does it accord with biblical teaching? And if it doesn't, you don't say it. That's the test. You stop. You don't write it. You don't write it. You don't say it. If it does, if it accords with Apostolic teaching, biblical teaching, then you write it and you say it. It's your job. 
That's giving the Bible functional authority. Let me give you another text, and then we'll, we'll do some application, and you'll get more clearly what I'm talking about. 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11 goes like this. 1 Peter 4, 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves in the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So Peter is telling us how to be a good steward, manager, household manager of God's grace when we speak and when we serve. So how do you manage grace? It's a very interesting concept. So grace is like the household goods. The steward, the manager is given them and he manages them a certain way. How? When we serve, he says, we manage grace well by relying on the strength from outside ourselves. When we speak, we manage grace well by relying on oracles of God from outside ourselves. That's the parallel that I'm seeing. Let me say that again. When we serve, we manage, we're stewards of grace, and we do it well. We do, we do our stewarding, managing well by relying on strength from outside ourselves. And then the, the parallel, the analogy is when we're speaking grace, when we're managing it through our mouth well, we are relying on words and oracles from outside ourselves so that this is conformed to that. Or put it another way, if you're a steward of God's grace in serving, you submit yourself to God's power. If you're a steward of God's grace in speaking, you submit yourself to God's word. That's the parallel I see in, in verses 10 and 11. So let me summarize where we've been so far, and then, and then we'll do some defining and, and applying here. When we put it all together, what emerges is that we give God's word functional authority by testing anything that comes into our mind, whether it's prophetic, uh, by intuition, by reasoning, by meditating on the Bible or meditating on uh, the secular news media, anything that comes into our mind and wants to be written, wants to be spoken, we test that by apostolic teaching, biblical teaching, and if it does not conform, we don't say it, and we don't write it. We give functional authority in our lives to the Word by testing everything that wants to be spoken and written and just not doing it if it doesn't conform to what's in the Word. So now here's my effort to put into a sentence how we do this. So we're trying to bore in on, I've got kind of two more levels of how. Bore in on the practical how. Here, here's the first level. 
cultivate, this is, my, this is really the main point of the message, so this is the key sentence. Cultivate the habit of mind. I'm saying this to, to everybody, pastors in particular. Cultivate the habit of mind that asks as every debatable sentence forms in your mind. I'll come back to this and explain these words. Cultivate the habit of mind that asks, as every debatable sentence forms in your mind, one, is there a passage in the Bible that sounds like it supports that sentence? Two, is there a passage in the Bible that sounds contrary to that sentence? That's my exhortation to you. That's the, the, the habit of mind I have tried to live with for the last 40 years or so. Any thought that wants to get into a blog, any thought that wants to get into a tweet, any thought that wants to get into a sermon, any thought that wants to get into a book has got to go through those two sentinels. If, are there any sentences in the Bible that sound like they support that? Are there any sentences in the Bible that sound like they're opposed to that? This will make you a person yielding functional authority to the Bible. Let me, let me give you five clarifications of that sentence and then three illustrations of how it works. Clarification number one, if you, for whatever reason in your past, and I, I see a lot of young millennials in this category, if, if you have seen so much misuse of proof texting that you don't any longer regularly memorize or use sentences from the Bible to govern your thinking and your speaking and your writing, that's an overreaction and you need to get past it. If you are so afraid of proof texting that you won't take a text and prove that the thought in your brain is wrong, you got a problem. And it's not your mom's fault. <laughs> it's your fault. I, I think it is right and good, I would add, necessary to use Bible sentences to nullify false thoughts in my head. Call out what you want. I call it guns, bullets, swords. Kill them, shoot them, kill them, do what you got to do. And it's usually nice, clean knives called verses. Shoot, you're dead. You don't fit with this verse. Now look, I know that the beef with proof texting is Texts are taken out of context. Well, guess what? Texts have meanings, real, true meanings, and you can know what that is. And once you know what that is, you, kill, you can kill error with it, mainly what's in your head, ready to be written in some stupid tweet that you thought was clever. I'm going to give you some examples, but wait, wait. Clarification number two. Now, remember, what, what I'm suggesting is that you have 
debatable sentences that come into your mind as to whether they should be spoken or written. And the reason I put the word debatable in there is because I know it's unrealistic to do this with every sentence. You can't live that way, right? Like right now, I'm not testing every sentence coming out of my mouth. I'm not stopping and doing that question. Now, I, I did most of them for the last two days, but right now I'm just flowing, which is, which is why your wife has to correct you when you go home and, and tell you that was not smart. What you... <laughs> so back to the manuscript. I know it's unrealistic to, to test every sentence that way. It takes too long. It would ruin all spontaneous communication. I get that. So I'm not saying that. I'm saying use those two tests, any Bible verses that sound supportive, any Bible verses that sound opposed, use that test for every debatable sentence that comes into your mind And part of your maturity is knowing what's debatable and what's not. And and I'll tell you, more is debatable than you think. Meaning, more things need your public support and cannot be taken for granted than you think. Clarification number three follows from that. The more public your sentences are, say sermons instead of personal conversation or blog instead of a personal email, the more public your sentences are, the more you should be inclined to show, show publicly what part of the Bible warrants you saying this. Now, CJ, if I had been invited and accepted to speak twice, which I didn't accept, and I don't know whether you wanted me to, but I wouldn't have accepted because if, so, so it, so it, so it all falls, it all falls on me having resolved, I can only do one for At any rate, if I had a second one to do, it would have been on this point to try to persuade you in all of your public, that means preaching especially, to show the people where you got the points. Show them why the sentence passes muster. Give the Bible functional authority in your preaching by pushing their nose into their phones. But that would be another sermon, and I'm just stating the principle now. The more public your sentences are, the more you should feel some pressure to show publicly the biblical warrant for the sentence, those debatable sentences. Number, number four, uh, clarification number four of my, my big main sentence. The reason I said, and you may, it may go by you too fast. Here's what I said. There, here are my two questions. Is there a passage in the Bible that sounds like it supports this sentence? 
And is there a passage in the Bible that sounds contrary to this sense? The reason I use the word sounds is because you're often doing this quick, and it may sound contrary or sound supportive and not be contrary or not be supportive. And you have to think of whether it is or not. And that's part of what your job involves. So don't assume when you're about to speak a sentence that seems so right to you, some gospel-laden sentence, and, and you can think of a verse that seems contrary to that. It might not be, or it might be. So when you're doing your test, you've got you to quickly run these things through your brain, or if you have more time, slowly run them through your brain and just take all the ones that sound supportive and sound contrary. And then you've got a bunch of verses in your computer in front of you, and you've got to start figuring out, do they or don't they support or contradict what I'm about to, to say or to, to write? Clarification number five. Yes, this does imply that in many situations you're going to have to do this kind of testing without a computer in front of you with your Bible program and your brain will be the only concordance you have and therefore you should be building it all the time. I, I, can't, I cannot tell you what a, a marvel it seems to me now get this, I, just, I don't know how this works, but so I'm 70 years old, been reading my Bible for about 60, I don't know, when I started reading it, 11th grade maybe? <laughs> that sounds stupid. <laughs> I know it was 15 years old at least because I've got markings in my mom, the Bible my mom and dad gave me. So what is that, 15, 70, 55 years away. So I've been reading this Bible for a long time. Now at any, any given moment, if you just say, quote some verses. Well, there's, I don't know how many thousands of verses are in there. And, and, and I'll have trouble getting out a few, right? But if you take any given sentence that is controversial and you say it as true, I'm on it. And you know what's, what's happening? It's just going, just right through my brain, picking up all the, no, 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 no. And I don't know how that works. Like, I do not know how that works because suddenly there's four texts in my mind that don't work with that sentence. They don't work. How in the world does that work? It is, it is very much like tagging in a, in a computer program. Like you t- somebody tagged those verses so that when this doctrine fits, bing, it's up, or when this doesn't fit, go dong, it's, no, it doesn't work. <laughs> That, so all that to say, build, build your hard drive. With, just fill it, fill it. I'm 70, I work on Bible memory every day. Every day I'm, I'm memorizing, trying to memorize more Bible. I don't think my life is going to be easier in the next 10 years. I don't think the devil is going to be softer on me between now and 80 Therefore, to think my weaponry could somehow be laid down 
or not kept in good order or not increased is insane as I see the world right now. So all, all that implication number, what it was at, five, is build your concordance in your head because most of this testing you have to do when you don't have a computer right there in front of you. So those are my five clarifications of my, my main sentence. And the main sentence is, go back and find it, where, where it was. Cultivate the habit of mind that asks at every debatable sentence, uh, do, lost my place, I should know this by heart. Is there a passage in the Bible that sounds like it supports this? The sentence that's about to be written or spoken, is there a passage in the Bible that sounds contrary to this sentence? So let me use it, let me say it one more, one more way. Call into service the defense attorney in your mind and the biblical prosecuting attorney. You got a biblical defense attorney, biblical prosecuting attorney for every sentence that comes into your head that could be controversial or doubted. The defense attorney is going to defend the sentence and the prosecuting attorney is going to oppose the sentence and your job is to do what Jesus says in Luke 12, 57. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? A judge looks at two, listens to the two attorneys and says, this is the sentence. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 15. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. So make sure uh, you're deciding between biblical attorneys. That's what I'm talking about. Biblical attorneys here. Not ego attorneys and not shame attorneys and not greed attorneys and not revenge attorneys. You know what I mean? There are all kinds of reasons why you would write a sentence in a blog that's not biblical. All kinds of reasons why you would say a sentence in a sermon that's not biblical. Reasons of ego, reasons of avoiding embarrassment, reasons of making money or keeping from losing money from that big giver, reasons for getting back at your enemies. And I'm saying those attorneys, you don't pay any attention to them. You don't listen to those attorneys making a case for the sentence on the basis of ego, making a case for the sentence on the basis of shame avoidance, money-making, revenge. You just say, you're out of court, out of order. I only want biblical attorneys, yay or nay from the Bible. The yay, if you win, you free. Sentence, not guilty, get written, get spoken. If you win... We shut up. We don't write it. We don't say it. So beware of letting other attorneys hold sway in your courtroom. Now, before I give you my three illustrations of how this works, let me tell you what, why I think it will have a huge, what it'll do if you do it. If you cultivate this mindset, I think your words Preached words, counseled words, written words will have more um, fruit, more effectiveness, because they will have more depth, and you'll see this in the illustrations, more depth, more precision, more authority, and therefore more faith-awakening, God-glorifying 
effect. And those will become plain. Depth, precision, authority, faith awakening, God-glorifying effect. Here's illustration number one. Uh, These are real-life illustrations from Twitter or blogs or, more recently, a, a document I was asked to sign. So illustration number one, this is from Twitter from I can't remember how long ago. Wouldn't want you to try to track it down, though you could probably. Suppose the sentence comes into your mind, and you contemplate putting it in a tweet. Quote, you are forgiven in order to forgive. You do not forgive in order to be forgiven. You are forgiven in order to forgive. You do not forgive in order to be forgiven. That sentence comes into your mind, and you run it by sentinel number one. Are there biblical sentences that would support that? Indeed, there are. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So your forgiving is flowing from being forgiven. Okay, I'll write it. I'll write it. I love the sound of it. I'll put it in the tweet. But I've got another sentinel. Remember Piper? Piper said there's another sentinel. There's another question to ask. Namely, are there any Bible verses that sound contrary to that? This is always crucial. Half the, half the errors I see in Twitter are in the negative half of the proposition. You affirm something, and then you negate something, and I'm saying, yes, mm. How about Matthew 6, 14 to 15? If you forgive others their trespasses, your Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespassers, your Father will not forgive your trespasses. Well, that sure sounds like we must forgive in order to be forgiven. So to give the Bible functional authority, I don't think that sentence should have been written. I don't think it should have been written. The second half of it does not comport with Scripture. Because even though your initial forgiveness in justification is not based on your forgiving anybody anything, later on, if you prove to be a wicked unforgiving servant, your master will throw you in jail until you pay the last farthing, which is forever. There's a parable about that. (laughs) And farthing is from the King James. (laughs) So when you do the work of saying, okay, I know Ephesians 4.32 and Matthew 6.14-15 are not contradictory. Because God doesn't contradict himself. Therefore, I got work to do. I can't just put this thing in a tweet. I can't just put this thing out there in public because it sounds so clever. I got work to do. I got to figure out how it is that I am forgiven on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, come into a right standing with God, and how it is that if I don't forgive my enemies, my Father will not forgive me ever. It's not like temporary. And once you figure that out, you're going to write a different sentence. 
and it'll be deeper, more precise, with more authority, more faith-building, more God-glorifying. Here's illustration number two. Suppose the sentence has come into your mind. You see, what happens is you're preparing a sermon. You've worked your tail off to get the point of the text figured out. And now you're trying to say it. And you want to say it effectively. And really punchy sentences come to you. And you like them. <laughs> and it just, they might not be right. <laughs> so here's, here's a punchy line. The gospel is not the message what we must do for God, but what he has done for us. Grace never says, if you do this deed, I will do that. It says, done. So catchy, so gospel rich, so grace exalting, so you give it the positive test. Any Bible verses that support this? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It is finished. Done. The essence, the glory of the gospel. Done. Not do. Done. Amen. And then you run your negative test. Any Bible verses that sound a problem for this? Like dozens If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. I mean, remember what it said. It said, grace never says, if you do this deed, I will do that. Oh, yes, it does. (laughs) If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And on and on and on. So, you don't write that sentence. You think, okay, I love the gospel. I love Justification by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, on the basis of Christ alone, in the Bible alone. I love it. And, and, and I've got all these sentences that are conditional as to whether I will make it to heaven. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And if you don't put to death the deeds of the body and live in the power of the flesh, you will die. That's the way the Bible is written and you work and you work and you find the unity deeper than you thought it was and your teaching and your allegiance to the word and the functional authority of the Bible in your life has taken you deeper, made you more precise, given you more authority so that the word is manifestly treasured, all of it, every sentence of it. Your people are starting to recognize this man is not light with the gospel. He, he takes every sentence seriously. He is a reliable teacher. He is not a pushover. He doesn't ride hobby horses. He checks everything he says by the word of God, and they start to embrace the preciousness of what you live for. That's example number, number two, and this is the last one. Close with this. This is just from last week. So I get a document in the mail. Actually, it was 
it was an email. Um, and it was a, um, a position paper to be signed about next year's celebration of the Reformation. And um, it was written by people in Europe because I was just there last summer and I saw it and I loved this document. It was written to show how the Reformation is not over. The Roman Catholic Church in what it is doing in Italy and Poland and throughout Eastern Europe in particular is enslaving people by directing them away from the Bible, toward the saints, toward Mary, all kinds of horrible distortions. And this Pope, for all of his liberalism, is as old-fashioned with indulgences as anybody ever was for the last 500 years. And it is devastating. So this document is carefully written up to a point. And I read it. He said, would you be willing to sign it? I saw, I saw five names, and you'd know all of them that are already signed there. My friends, your heroes. <laughs> and I read it, and I prayed, and I read it. And then I did my test. Okay, here's three or four sentences that I'm stumbling over. Is there something in the Bible that supports this? Manifestly, yes. Are there sentences in the Bible that make this sentence look like a problem? Oh, my. Here's the sentence. This is one of about four. Quote, the Protestant Reformation was ultimately a call to appreciate afresh the fact that salvation comes to us through faith alone, period. I can imagine you're sitting there saying, you got a problem with that? <laughs> what sentences would support that? Oh, my. Like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace you are saved, saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that you'll never boast. What can be clearer, Piper? Are there any sentences in the Bible that are problem for salvation comes to us through faith alone? What about 2 Thessalonians 2.13? God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief and belief in the truth. Saved, the very words of the sentence, through sanctification. Or Hebrews 12.14, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So let me read you. This is really painful for me. This is a hard decision because I, I know what my friends meant when they signed it. I know what the people who wrote it meant. But I'll, I'll, I didn't sign it. And here's what, I, here's what I wrote them. How I wish... I could have made some suggestions before this was finalized because in the disputes 
I'm engaged in on justification, it is absolutely crucial to keep justification and salvation as distinct terms. With salvation being the larger, all-inclusive term of all God's acts to bring sinners to final glory, of which justification is only one such act. The reason this is crucial is because our spirit-enabled works do indeed become a part of how God saves us. Hebrews 12, 14. Though they are not at all a part of how God justifies us. I just read in my devotions this morning. I was writing this a few days ago. I just read in my devotions this morning. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This is why justified by faith alone and saved by faith alone don't have the same meaning. But this document repeatedly conflates the term salvation and justification. And I'm almost certain those who drafted this intend justification when they say salvation. But that's not always the case in the biblical usages. For me to deal with the people I have to interact with, greater precision of wording is required. I wish it weren't. I mean, I, I, what is, this is, a little, this is a little subordinate point for pastors especially. If, if people come to you with a document, which they will if they haven't, for you to sign, what will your signature mean? You need to decide that right now or soon. What will your signature mean? Will, you, will it mean, as it does for many, the gist is pretty good. I think that's what signatures mean for a lot of people. The gist is good. You know what my signature means? I can defend every sentence in this document, biblically. That's what my signature means. It's, it's why I don't sign many documents. <laughs> Most people don't write careful documents. That document could have been fixed in five minutes. Five minutes. And they would have all been okay with it. But we all live in different settings, don't we? I have struggled for the last ten years in battles of justification where the people in my face will not go for that. They'll see that inconsistency instantly and say, you're more traditional than you are biblical. You're just following Martin Luther and John Calvin and all the Puritans because you're not paying any attention to the text of the Bible. Because right here in 2 Thessalonians, and I'm done, I'm cooked. They'd be right. So, my second sentinel is the one that seems so effective in protecting you and me. So let me, let me draw my conclusion here and sum up like this. Make my plea one more time for my sentence. Um, the Bible is its own intrinsic, self-authenticating authority. It is God's Word. You don't give it. You don't give the Bible its authority. It has ultimate authority that is, a right to decide what is true and false and good and bad and right and wrong and beautiful and ugly. God's Word settles it rightly understood. Your calling as pastors, my calling is, and, and all the more um, as children of God, 
and creatures of God. So creatures, children, shepherds, all of that says our calling is to give the Bible functional authority in every tweet, every blog, every sermon, every counseling session, every bedside prayer. You just don't wing it without thoughtful submission to the word of God. So every debatable sentence that comes into your mind, you test. Are there Bible passages that sound supportive? Are there Bible passages that sound contrary? If there are, you got homework to do. And when you do, it takes you deeper. It makes you more precise. That gives you more authority. Your people start trusting your handling of the Word of God. The Bible is elevated in its preciousness and its power to bring people to faith and to, be, to give God glory is increased. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would all do this more and do it better so that out of our mouths and out of our uh, keystrokes, there would not come sentences that do not conform to biblical truth. Oh, that we might be people of the truth and give functional authority to the Bible in everything we write and everything we speak. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.